Welcome to Ship It, a podcast about ops, infrastructure, and people. I am Gerhard Lazi, and this week we have the pleasure of Rich Burroughs, senior developer advocate at Loft Labs and host of the Cube Cuddle podcast. We talk about multi tenancy in Kubernetes and how to run Kubernetes in Kubernetes with vCluster. If you're using Kind, you'll find this episode interesting and I think even helpful. We also talk about the role that Kelsey Hightower played in Rich joining the CNCF ecosystem. The key takeaway is that people make all the difference. ADHD is something that Rich thinks about often. I was curious about the difference between ADHD and burnout, as well as what Rich concluded from his Twitter thread on rereading sent emails. Link in the show notes. Huge thanks to Fastly for shipping our episodes super fast all around the world. Check them out at Fastly.com. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Sentry. Build better software faster, diagnose, fix, and optimize the performance of your code. Over 1 million developers and 68,000 organizations already use Sentry. That number includes us. Here's the absolute easiest way to try Sentry right now. You don't have to do anything. Just go to try.sentry-demo.com. That is an open sandbox with data that refreshes every time you refresh or every 10 minutes, something like that. But long story short, that's the easiest way to try Sentry right now. No installation, no whatsoever. That dashboard is the exact dashboard we see every time we log into Sentry. And of course, our listeners get a deal. They get the team plan for free for three months. All you got to do is go to Sentry.io and use the code changelog when you sign up. Again, Sentry.io and use the code changelog. We are going to ship in three, two, one. Hi, Rich. It's so great to be finally talking Kubernetes with you. Welcome to Ship It, or should I say, Cuddle on Deck? <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to chat with you. So apparently, the captain of a ship is the ship. So in your case, it's Cuddle, right? Cuddle is your ship, just as Ship It yep. is my ship. <laughs> I think your name is slightly better because my <laughs> ship is Ship It. That sounds a bit <laughs> too many ships there. Anyways, uh, Cuddle on Deck. I'm really glad to be talking to you, Kubernetes. Uh, you're a big fan, I hear. Yeah. Not just not just the tech, but also the people, the ecosystem. I really like that. And I'm wondering, I have to ask, why did you start KubeCuddle? So yeah, for folks who don't know, KubeCuddle is my podcast that I do where I interview folks from the Kubernetes community. It's just a side project that I do, you know, mm-hmm. kind of on my own. The reason that I started it is, so I was at KubeCon San Diego. Mm-hmm the last of the pre-pandemic KubeCons. I remember that. Yeah. And I was working at a company where I was doing developer relations and I did a podcast for them and or co-hosted and created one. And it was fun to do. I really loved my co-host. We had some really great conversations with people, but the company owned it, right? And so like there were questions about, Mm. you know, are the metrics good enough to justify us spending the time that we do on this, you know, those kinds of things came up. And I was thinking about it and I 
I kind of wanted to do one of my own Mm -hmm. that I own personally, you know, and wasn't like something that one of my employers controlled. And I was there at KubeCon and I kept running into all these amazing people that I know, you know, I saw all kinds of folks there and it just made me think about the fact that I have access to a lot of amazing people in the Kubernetes community. You know, I've, I've just met a lot of folks over the last few years and yeah, it just, it just got me thinking that, you know, I had this list of friends that are in that community and I was like, I, you know, I'm sure I could get some of these folks to come on the podcast. And, and interestingly, when you're doing things like podcasts, access is a big thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like I probably can't interview you know, President Biden on a podcast if I want to, right? I'm still working on my Elon Musk interview. <laughs> That's like a long-term project. I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think Elon is going to talk Kubernetes with me <laughs> or shipping code <laughs> on Mars or wherever, you know, his yeah. spaceships go. But uh that's my ambition. That's why I started to ship it. <laughs> Maybe he'll talk about Dogecoin or something. Five years from now, who knows? Yeah. You know, I was thinking about that. And then the other thing that happened was I ran into someone that I just knew from Twitter at the time, Mark Mandel from Google. And Mark mm-hmm. used to be the co-host of the Google Cloud Platform podcast, mm-hmm. which, you know, I used to listen to that all the time. And it was so good. And we were chatting about podcasting and he mentioned something that really stuck with me. He said that part of the reason why he did that podcast or why he loved doing it was that when there was something new, a new interesting technical topic that he wanted to know about, he would just invite the expert onto his podcast and, and get them mm-hmm. to explain it to him, you know, which which I thought was really fascinating. Well, guess what? I want to learn about vCluster. Uh, okay. And this thing called Dev Space. <laughs> okay, we'll do <laughs> so, some of that. I think, yeah, Mark, right on the money. I'm yeah. thinking exactly the same thing. It's kind of interesting in that, you know, that was really one of the things that inspired me to start the podcast, but I don't really talk about technical stuff much on there. Like, yeah. I didn't end up doing that. I don't really bring people on to to ask them about technical things. It, I mean, it turns out that what I'm interested in a lot more is the people themselves, you know? Mm. And we do talk about technology some, but it's really what I want to hear is these people's stories about why they got into tech, what drove them to do it, what got them into the Kubernetes community, how they how they benefit from their involvement with it. All of those kinds of things are, are the things that really interest me. And so I've been yeah. doing the podcast. I started doing it at maybe the worst time ever. So I, I think that I launched it in February of 2020. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. just right into it, the lockdown hits. And I those first few months, I was extremely anxious and was having trouble focusing on stuff. And so the early episodes are pretty sparse. And they even are still at times. I just do it when I feel like it. I don't have a set cadence. So yeah, but it, it's good. I'm I'm glad that I've kept it going. You know, I have ADHD and it's hard for me sometimes to sustain long-term projects, especially if it's really only for me, right? Like, mm-hmm. like there would be people I think who would be disappointed if I stopped doing the podcast, but really the only person I'm accountable to is myself. So I'm happy about that. Yeah, I know the topic of ADHD is a big one and I want us to come back to that towards the end, uh, I'm thinking. But what I'm hearing is that you get to do something that you love and you do it exactly the way you think it should be done and you do it when you feel like it. 
So to me, it sounds like you're living the dream when it comes to <laughs> podcasting and, you know, having those great conversations, you know, talking to the people that you admire, that you respect, that you want to learn from. That sounds like a great, you know, mix of things. And I do have to say that you have a couple of great episodes. Actually, all of them are really great. Oh, My favorite you. ones are the ones with Kelsey and the one with uh, Chris and Dave. And yeah. maybe the fact that they're on the front page has something to do with it. So maybe there's some sort of sort of an algorithm that does that. But uh, still, I mean, they happen to be my favorite ones. And I'm wondering, which is your favorite Cube Cuddle episode? I know it's hard, but if you were to pick one, which one is your favorite and why? I mean, I think if I had to pick a single favorite one, it would be that one with Dave and Chris. Mm -hmm. And that was because it just was such a different experience. So to explain it for folks who, who haven't heard the episode, Chris Nova and Dave Fogel, they both have this shared experience that they were unhoused or homeless at one point, right? In Dave's case, he had gotten started a little bit in his tech career, and then he was unhoused for a while, and then he he got back into it. And in Chris's case, you know, she was like living in a storage shed, like with a bunch oh. of gear, learning about open source and and all these things, and. And it's really fascinating because it's such a different story. One of the things we talked about is the fact that, you know, people talk about representation a lot when it comes to like gender and, you know, ethnicity and things like that. But you don't really hear people talk about representation of homeless people, you know? Mm, and yeah. so to have a couple of people who really had been through that experience and were willing to put themselves in a very vulnerable position, you know, to, to come on a podcast and talk about that. Mm. It was really amazing. And I feel like I learned so much from that, but, but I feel like that's, that's not the typical episode, you know? And so, so of the other ones, yeah. the conversation with Kelsey was definitely one of my favorites. Um, he's somebody that I've known for several years, partly because of the fact that I'm here in Portland. And so he lives here as well. And so I have the advantage of bumping into him at seeing him speak at like small meetups and things that somebody outside of Portland would probably never hear about. And so I've known him for a few years and I had actually interviewed him before, you know, for another podcast. And so it was pretty fun to be able to talk with him. He always says some things that, you know, just end up really inspiring me a lot. He's, he's such an interesting person. I feel like I end up parroting a lot of what he says to me. Well, if it resonates with you, it's yours, right? It's not yeah. like, sure, the idea is, you know, he maybe starts them or he mentions them. But so I've heard this expression. I don't remember where, but it really stuck with me because it felt so true. If it's important who said it, it means it's not important. Oh, interesting. Right? The idea being that if the idea is so powerful that you don't need anything else. Yeah. Because it's, it's yours or it's ours. It's, you know, it doesn't belong to a person. It's a mindset and it yeah. belongs to a group of people that identify with that idea. And it's mine just as much as it's yours. So what I'm hearing is that, first of all, your episodes are getting better and better because the one with Chris and Dave is your last one. Yeah. And if that's your favorite, it means that they are getting better and they're very different, which I like. You have like that diversity going on. Yeah. You have that the real life, not the real world, the real life, which is always tougher. Yeah. Right. We talk about a real world infrastructure and setup, but what about real life? People that struggle with various things, whether it's ADHD, whether it's homelessness, whether it's other things, which have such a huge impact. Forget 
AWS versus GCP, this stuff is like so much bigger and it's out there and people don't talk about it enough. So I really like that you have that perspective and you share that with with others on KubeCuddle. So big fan of that. Well, thank you. I feel like the Kubernetes community is really amazing. There's so many interesting people and a lot of people with, at least from my perspective, really great values. Um, It's a very inclusive community. And I think that that's part of what I want to show to, right, is I want people to understand that this is a community full of a lot of really smart folks, you know, but also a lot of really welcoming people and that, you know, that they can come and participate too. People that care, people that, you know, give a damn, as some would say it. And I know that you've seen the Kubernetes documentary, but for those that haven't, I'll include the link. That's such a great one to understand the story of Kubernetes, but also hear those people talk, how they think, the struggles which they have had. They're not as extreme as the ones that we mentioned, <laughs> but nevertheless, they are tough. And it exists, the project, the community, because of many people, many great people believed in it and they gave their blood, sweat and tears to make it happen. Yeah, Not because of payout, but because they believed in it. Simon Sinek has quite a few things to say about that, which is one of my great favorites. Yeah, Kelsey is actually the person who brought me into the community, really, in essence. So I saw him speak at a very small event here in Portland. This was in like 2015. He was still working at CoreOS at the time. So this was before he was at Google. And he did this talk that I don't think it was the whole thing was recorded at that event, but he did it again. And there is a recording out there. If you Google like Kelsey Hightower Tetris, you'll probably find it. But he he actually played Tetris and he used that as a metaphor for this idea that that now we have these clusters, right? And these clusters are made up of a bunch of compute nodes and they're really just resources, their memory and their CPU and you know storage. And we don't have to worry anymore about what app or what host an app is running on. I'm an old school like ops guy and and I used to be that person who knew, you know, oh, the front end app runs on these servers, right? And and I could yeah. tell you what host everything was running on. And it really appealed to me, you know, this idea that that you, you know, have this cluster and it puts things on the the nodes and balances the workloads and um, restarts things that die, which is Another thing I used to do when PagerDuty woke me up at 3 a.m., I would go and restart the app that had died. And so it was really exciting to me. I was still in, in operations at that time. It's been a few years now since, since I had that kind of role, but, but I went through a lot of pain in the old days. And I was very interested in the fact that the folks who designed Kubernetes clearly had thought about those same things, right? Mm. That Tetris game that uh, Kelsey played was very yeah. memorable. Yeah. And it's definitely something that really caught my imagination when it comes to Kubernetes. There was a time when I wasn't sure whether Mesos was going to be on top because they had the scale. And this is yeah. all in the documentary. I remember using it. There were a couple of weird things, but the fact that Apple got on board and Airbnb were using Mesos, like big names, it made it interesting. And Kubernetes was only just, you know, starting to become... People started like to talk about it. I wouldn't say it became popular, but people started talking more and more about it. But when Kelsey gave the talk, something happened. 
Like it really caught people's imaginations. And I completely understand when you tell me that Kelsey got you into Kubernetes because I think the same thing happened for me. It was that Tetris game. Yeah, he's done so much to help build the community. It's It's been amazing. Mm. I have to admit, actually, I haven't seen the documentary yet. It's on my to-do okay. list. I've been meaning to. I've shared the links on Twitter, so it probably looks like I've seen it, but yeah. I'm going to be watching it soon. But I definitely remember those days. And there was a time where you could look at Mesos and look at Kubernetes and Mesos mm. was the right choice, you know? And it's really, really funny to look back on that because I imagine there aren't a lot of folks running Mesos anymore. And if they do, it's probably, you know, the legacy thing that nobody wants to touch, you know? What's up, shippers? This episode is brought to you by our friends at Raygun. Raygun gives you instant visibility into the health of your software, get actionable real-time insights into the quality and the performance of your web and mobile apps. Raygun delivers modern tooling for customer-centric teams, error monitoring and crash reporting, ship better quality software faster, get code-level insights into the health of your application in real-time, and start fixing the errors impacting your end-user's experience. You get real user monitoring, quickly identify and resolve front-end performance issues impacting real users in real-time, understand exactly how your application performed for every user session and page load. And of course, application performance monitoring gain unrivaled visibility into server-side performance, unlock detailed code-level insights into the root cause of performance issues so you can take action and deliver lightning-fast digital experiences. The next step is to head to raygun.com and start your free 14-day trial, no credit card required. Join thousands of customer-centric software teams who use Raygun every single day. Again, raygun.com. So in your recent tweets, I've seen a few that caught my attention. The one about the Kubernetes documentary was one, and uh, I'm really looking forward to talking to you after you watch it. Both parts, <laughs> they're great. And the other tweet that caught my attention was the really exciting stuff that is coming up for vCluster. And I'm wondering if you can tell us more about that. I can actually, because I think by the time this airs, it will have been released. So. I mean, it's an open source. So if somebody was interested, they could go and, and dig in the releases and see the alpha versions that are there now. But the really big, exciting thing is, so I should back up and explain kind of what vCluster is. Maybe after, I always like doing things backwards. Oh, basically okay. Basically working backwards, like, why is this exciting? <sighs> and if I'm excited about this, I'll listen. And if I'm not, then that's okay. It doesn't matter what it is if I'm not excited. Okay, that's so fine. tell me. <laughs> well, basically, we... We have built a plugin system for vCluster that allows people to customize some things about how it works. Because we've had a lot of people come to us and they have some mm -hmm. sort of edge case that that doesn't necessarily work great with the way that vCluster works. But we don't want to necessarily, you know, change the functionality to fit their specific use case. So there's going to be a plugin system now, and people are going to be able to write their own plugins to to manage the syncing process that happens. Mm. And it's going to allow people to do a lot of pretty cool stuff like 
being able to spin up a cluster that already has, you know, software installed in it, you know, like as part of the provisioning process. Interesting. A lot of other things. And we're excited about it. I'm I'm really excited, especially to see what people in the community come up with. Like it's always the case for me with things like this that that folks from the community come up with use cases that I just never would have imagined mm-hmm. myself, mm-hmm. you know? And so that's for me, a lot of the excitement about it is, is to see what, what people do come up with. And I think that what we're going to probably have a, a repo, a shared repo, you know, that folks can contribute like their, their own plugins that they write to, if they want to share those with other people. Do you have plugins that will ship part of this? like a few plugins that are part of this release so that you have a plugin system as well as a couple of plugins that show what is possible. Yep, there are a few examples, yeah. There are three examples right now. So there's an example that basically does what I described that lets you like have a deployment, you know, that gets done in as part of the provisioning. So okay. basically the the cluster, the V cluster, the virtual cluster comes up and it has, you know, this deployment in it when it comes up. Are those deployments, I'm assuming, is just YAML, which gets applied, but can it, does it support, for example, Helm charts that you can declare at provision time, at vCluster provision time? Okay, so Helm or YAML, just plain YAML, okay. And then there's a syncer for CRDs. So it's it's kind of a similar thing if you wanna, have those like CRDs, you know, there in the cluster when it comes up. I can imagine that being very important. Yes, CRDs being very important. And yeah, okay. Okay. To me, this sounds exciting because I can imagine myself wanting to provision V clusters with things pre-installed. That sounds great to me. As a feature, it's already useful to me from the get-go, from the first release. Yeah. Now, because I'm excited, I want to unpack what vCluster is, but more importantly, what is the pain that vCluster addresses? Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see if this comes up in the documentary at all. Maybe you could tell me, but but I'm I'm fascinated by the fact that when vCluster was designed, I mean, when Kubernetes was designed, mm-hmm. it really wasn't designed with multi-tenancy in mind, you know? Things have gotten better security-wise, you know, but you think about the early days, there wasn't even RBAC, you know, and it's fascinating to me because it was based on the Borg design. So Google had been running Borg internally for quite a while before Kubernetes showed up. And it was interesting to me that it wasn't something that was really a focus, right, for them, obviously, you know, in the early days. So, you know, if you've been in the Kubernetes community for a while, you've probably heard from people who are complaining about multi-tenancy, you know? Mm. And what usually ends up happening is one of two things. Either people do namespace isolation, which um, has problems. Like as a developer who is working with code that has CRDs or other global objects that go with it, you know, you can't touch those um, if you're restricted to a namespace. The other option that people use a lot, and I think this probably happens more, is they just provision a ton of clusters, right? So like every team gets their own cluster or, you know, maybe even per every person. And that's really, really bad. You know, it's wasteful in terms of cost. It also has an impact on our environment. The fact that there's all of these clusters running and like in a lot of cases, the workloads 
aren't really doing anything. You know, they're just yeah. taking up resources. Holly Cummins from IBM gave a really great keynote at KubeCon a few years ago where, where she talked about this. And um, I really recommend like folks Googling that and, and finding it, or maybe you can put a link in the show notes. Um, it's a really wonderful talk and it got me thinking about this stuff. And, and it was one of the reasons why I was really excited about vCluster because it, it sort of bridges the gap some, right? It gives people a situation where they can share a cluster and then inside of each namespace on the cluster. So they're, you're still doing the namespace isolation in essence, but what vCluster does is it puts what looks like a full-blown Kubernetes cluster inside of that namespace. So we started off with K3S and you know there's a K3S API server in there and a few other things. And when you as an end user are interacting with that virtual cluster, your API requests are going to that K3S API server inside there. And so it gives those developers or whoever's working with the virtual cluster they're admin in there, right? And so they can do things like manage CRDs and, and all of those things, but they don't have direct access to the underlying cluster. So hang on, hang on. Did you, by any chance, put Kubernetes in Kubernetes? <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> okay, did you try putting a Kubernetes in the Kubernetes that runs in Kubernetes? <laughs> you know, I actually How many layers that, did so you go? <laughs> I've only gone that far, but yes, there is. I actually have a video on YouTube that I can give you the link to where I've got cluster, I think it was running on Google Cloud platform. I have a, a GKE cluster and then I have a V cluster inside there. And then I did another V cluster inside of that V cluster. Whoa. But I think that, you know, really the the big use cases that we think that it addresses are, you know, dev environments is a really good one, you know. It's for some shops, it's still kind of the wild west, you know, when it comes to dev environments, like people just spin up whatever they want on their laptop yeah. and, you know, maybe they're using Minikube or Docker desktop or, or whatever, but there may not even be kind. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> no more kind. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love kind actually, but it's great but I'm looking forward to vCluster. <laughs> I maybe wouldn't run kind locally. I know some people do, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's really good for like testing things like that. But I think that the advantage of vCluster is that you can have a shared dedicated cluster, you know, in your, your actual environment that you run mm -hmm. real workloads in, right? So like AWS or GCP or whatever you're using, and you can share that with your developers that can each have a namespace with their own virtual cluster in it. And then they, it feels more like the production environment than if they were just running random stuff on their laptop. Okay. So let me try to see if I understood this. vCluster spins up a K3S, full-blown K3S instance, yeah. which is a single process. And that has its own API server, its own database for storing the config. I forget which one it's using, the built-in one. I know it supports SQLite and yeah. etcd. And it also has like, or it used to, or it added recently, and I say recently in the recent years, support for other stores for like configuration, or configuration stores, especially for the HA stuff. So you can run K3S in HA mode. So that's very interesting. But where do the workloads run? Because there is a Kubernetes cluster underneath. Right. How does that work? Right. So the virtual cluster doesn't have a scheduler. That's really the, the big difference. It doesn't schedule the workloads directly. What happens is those objects like pods are synced to the underlying cluster and the workloads run there. 
And so okay. when we were talking earlier about the, the plugin system, you know, that has to do with the sinker. And so that's the that's the part of, of the equation that people are going to be able to customize more, like what gets synced and how it gets synced, those kinds of things. But by okay. default, it's it's pods and, and just a few other objects. And then vCluster does some things like, like with the naming, for instance, when the pods get synced to the underlying cluster, it kind of renames them. So it puts the namespace and the virtual cluster name into the name of the pods. So when you do like, you know, kubectl get pods, you mm. see the that stuff embedded in the name. So that way there aren't collisions, you know, across the different virtual clusters. So because I'm a hacker at heart <laughs> and I love finding edge of the edge of systems, like where stuff breaks, that's where all the interesting stuff happens, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> like so that I know what the limits are, so that I know what to stay away from if I care, or how to what to improve. So yeah. I'm wondering, again, I think this is this is something which is best tried out for real rather than us discussing about it, but I'm going to mention it, is what happens when two different vClusters need to install different versions of cert manager in the same cluster? What happens with the CRDs? How do they get reconciled? That is something which I would love to, to try out myself and see what happens. Yeah. Very curious about that. If someone listening has experienced doing this already, please share. I'm very interested what happens. I think there likely are some folks who will listen okay. who do have experience with it. This is sort of the one of the big points of vCluster, right? Is the idea that you can manage these, these global objects like inside the virtual cluster. So you can definitely have like a version of a CRD that's different than than what's in another B cluster that's running on the same system. The other thing that you can do with certain kinds of things, like with ingresses, for instance, you might not want everybody to have their own ingress inside their virtual cluster. And so you could have an ingress on the host cluster that then you know gets shared yeah. to the virtual clusters. So it's pretty flexible. Um, it's going to be even more flexible with the plugin system. So yeah, I think it's really cool. The other great thing too is that there's a good community building up around it. It's it's a tool that people have been really excited about. It's the experience that I had actually when I first started playing with it is that it's just fun, right? It's like mm. kind of a new, novel, interesting thing. And, and so we've gotten a lot of feedback from people. We have a, a Slack, a community Slack for our commercial product and also our, the open source projects that we maintain. And yeah, all kinds of people coming up with mm -hmm interesting questions and things, again, things I never would have necessarily thought of. And so a lot of the things that we've been adding, a lot of the features are things that have come from the users, you know, requests or ideas from them. I can see how this can be really useful, especially for CI systems that need a Kubernetes. I've seen so many CI jobs running in GitHub Actions. The GitHub hosted runners, I don't think many people realize, but they don't have that much CPU or memory or disk. I mean, they are small instances and you can spin tens of those and, you know, you get them for free. So you get, you know, what you get, it's free. So if you don't like it, you can do yeah. your own. The point which I'm trying to make is that you have a Docker running in them and you're trying to install kind and then you try to run some integration tests and you're wondering why it takes half an hour well, you have your answer. <laughs> it's like yeah. in the setup. So if you're using vCluster and you have an actual Kubernetes, managed Kubernetes autopilot, I think that's amazing. I don't, I'm not sure how yeah. well vCluster runs there, but you only pay for what you run in that Kubernetes. And then you can spin these virtual Kubernetes clusters on demand, run your integration tests, tear them down, and you can keep repeating this and you will only pay 
for the Kubernetes that you run. And it's always fresh. You can run multiple versions. This sounds so exciting. So I can see that being amazing. But I'm also wondering, do people run this stuff in production by any chance? I don't know of anyone running it, running it in production yet. We've heard from some people who are working towards that. So I think that like within the next few months, there may be some folks doing it. It's not necessarily going to be the best fit for everybody for production. You know, everybody has their own um, requirements, especially when it comes to like compliance and auditing, security, things like that. So, you know, if you're working at a bank, you know, maybe these mm -hmm. virtual clusters aren't going to be enough isolation for you. Maybe you really are going to have to give everybody their own cluster. It really just depends. But I think that to me, the dev environments use case is a really strong one. I agree completely that the CI, you know, CD kind of use case is a really good one. The CI part, especially mm -hmm. I've worked at shops before that had really, really long running tests. And a lot of times you want to spin up new systems under test, even within the same test suite, right? Because yeah. you want a brand new system that doesn't have any cruft on it. And so, you know, you might be spinning those up and throwing them away multiple times within, within te a test suite. And so, you know, these V clusters take like a few seconds to start up. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's one thing which I loved about K3S, how quick they were to start up. It reminded me of containers versus VMs. It's like the same sort of difference. Yeah. Even if you go to GCP and you do get the cluster GK1 fairly fast, it doesn't take 15 minutes. I know that in some cases, for some ISs, it can take up to 15 minutes or even longer if there is a problem. So the point is, it's a huge difference if you can spin these up so quickly on a Kubernetes which is already running and then you can tear yeah. them down. So this makes me really excited and makes me wonder the things that we could do in terms of like experimenting. So let's imagine that we want to go from Kubernetes 122 to 123. I hear that's a bad yeah. one. <laughs> you know, if you have to do that upgrade, that migration, could you try it a couple of times and can you see until, like try different things until you get it working? And vCluster sounds like a good way of doing it because you can, right, run multiple and different Kubernetes yeah, versions. Absolutely. Each cluster can be a different one. So that's a huge thing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You can specify the version when you when you spin the cluster up. And besides K3S, we actually support a couple other options now. So that was the first one. But now one of those requests that we got from the community is we had somebody who really wanted to use it with K0S. Mm. And so it now supports that. And then we also have you can also run it just with Kubernetes. So you can have an actual Kubernetes API server in there instead of the K3S or K0S. Model. Okay, you're blowing my mind right now. I think <laughs> I think I want to ask you something else. <laughs> it's too much. Okay, I think the K3S <laughs> option is great, and that's a great place for right. people to start. But yeah, we you know we just keep talking to folks who who are like, oh, this doesn't work for me because of X reason, and and we definitely mm -hmm. try to address those things that we can and improve it. Just to double check, is this something that anyone can use for free? It's open source; they can download, yes. and they can start yeah, using absolutely. it. Absolutely. Okay. Okay, that's what I thought. I just wanted to make sure that that's the case. Yeah, so it was a feature in our commercial product that's called Loft. We had virtual clusters in there first, and then at one point we decided to open source it. And so it's been open sourced for, I want to say like at least seven or eight months, mm -hmm. something like that. So it's just been great to see people embrace this thing because there really are, I think, a lot of legitimate use cases for it. And there are 
a lot of people who really feel the pain of the multi-tenancy issues. So it's, you know, it's part of the reason why I joined the company is that when I looked at what they were building, it was things that addressed the pain points that I knew were out there, really major pain points. And they were addressing them in, in very smart ways. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Retool. Retool is the low-code platform for developers to build internal tools. Some of the best teams out there trust Retool. Brex, Coinbase, Plaid, DoorDash, Legal Genius, Amazon, Allbirds, Peloton, and so many more. The developers at these teams trust Retool as the platform to build their internal tools, and that means you can too. It's free to try, so head to retool.com changelog. Again, retool.com slash changelog. And by our friends at NetFoundry, the creator of OpenZD. OpenZD is the only open source way to embed zero trust networking into your app. This gives you unprecedented control and security. Give your app superpowers using an OpenZD SDK and a few lines of code, or use their tunnelers to spin up zero trust networking in minutes across any cloud or device. Never face the horrors of VPNs, DNS, inbound ports, or complex firewall rules. No networking engineering skills are needed. OpenZD is trusted by developers at Microsoft, Oracle, Ramco, and more. And if you don't want to host your own OpenZD, use the NetFoundry SaaS, which includes includes free forever tiers for up to 10 endpoints so you can test things out for yourself at the netfoundry.io slash changelog to learn more and get started. Again, netfoundry.io slash changelog. Speaking of a company that builds really interesting things, I keep hearing about this thing called DevSpace, and I don't know what it is. Can you tell me about it? Yeah, so DevSpace is actually the first tool that the company that is now Loft Labs made. So it's been around much longer than the cluster. It's really meant to address a different big pain point that people have, and that's how do I create consistent dev environments, right? Mm -hmm. Like, how do I make it easy for my developers to have a local Kubernetes cluster or a remote one to develop against? And so, you know, if you're familiar with tools like Tilt or Scaffold, it's in that kind of same space. I think that there are strengths and weaknesses of all of those tools. But but in essence, with DevSpace, what you're doing is you're, you're defining what your development workflow is, and you're doing that in code so that developers don't have to invent that all themselves. And I think another advantage, it actually reminds me a lot of infrastructure as code. Mm -hmm. When I worked at Puppet years ago, I was in that infrastructure as code world for many years. And I think that one of the big advantages that we found when we started doing infrastructure as code is that it was self-documenting, right? Like if you had a question about how a puppet module worked, you could read it, right? And Mm -hmm. and see how it worked. And that's a huge advantage. And the other piece of that is, say you you write your your dev workflow down in a page on your local Confluence or whatever you're using to share docs. How often does that get updated? You know, is it 
really the way it should work, you know? I'm sure that that most folks have probably played that game where you're looking at documentation and you're you're looking at the last date it was updated, right? And and hoping that it's still current, you know? But mm-hmm. that's a again, you know, this that same advantage that we saw with infrastructure as code because this thing is getting used like all the time, you know it's gonna be up to date. Okay. I have a question which will let me know the answer will let me know whether i want to ask more questions okay. <laughs> it's like whether, whether i want to dig into this can i run vim with dev space on kubernetes can you run vim so I'm, i have some code that i want to edit can my vim be provisioned with all the plugins with all the config using dev space in kubernetes that's a good question so not your <laughs> not a local vim but like actually in the cluster is that what you're saying yeah, yeah. So that my dev environment, I mean, my dev environment meets Kubernetes. I mean, shell, you can get it anywhere. That's not a problem. You can like shell like in a container and you're okay. Yeah, yeah. But what I care about more is the whole like Vim config and how can I declare it? Is <laughs> okay. it just a container that I, that I configure it? And the one which goes with that is Tmux as well. I mean, that's less important because I could run Tmux yeah. locally, so that's okay. And I can be connected, so it's not a problem. But I would love to have my, my my local dev environment means Vim and a bunch of things. <laughs> First off, I need to point out that you are a nerd. You, yes, very much so. If you could install Vim in the Kubernetes cluster, that is maybe the nerdiest question about dev space I've heard yet. We'll not get into tabs versus spaces or anything, but. Yeah, in essence, you can. It's configured with a YAML file. Mm-hmm. You can, you know, define the workflow there, and there is a way to basically run arbitrary shell commands. You know, so so you could do that. Okay, interesting. Do I need to get the license to use DevSpace? How does that work? DevSpace is open source. Can I get a license for like a supported DevSpace? Is there such an option, and why why would I get that? I'm genuinely curious because I'm thinking of GitHub Code Spaces. It's free, sure. But then you can pay for it and not have to worry about the hosts. So that's there is yeah. real value that I would choose to go for. VS Code never really got along with it. I'm still waiting for the Vim part in GitHub Code Spaces. And if I if you're telling me that I can have that with DevSpace, well, Kubernetes clusters we've already established it's really easy to get them spin them up, right? Whether yeah. they're a real one or virtual one. So I'm just going a step further. You know, if you look on our website, you're not going to find something trying to sell you a supported dev space. Mm-hmm. We do, I think, have one customer now who has is paying us for dev space support. It's not really the product that we're trying to sell. You know, mm-hmm. for us really the point of dev space is to help people with their development workflows and you know, hopefully when they learn about us and what we're doing and how we're giving back to the community, you know, that makes them want to look at the other products that we sell and, and, you know, maybe use it along with our commercial product. And they are very compatible. Like there is a, a loft plugin for dev space that makes it easier to use along with our commercial product, but it's not really something we, we sell generally. I'm going to ask you this one thing about your commercial product, which is your favorite feature in the commercial product. So that, that's easy. So my favorite feature by far is um, this thing called sleep mode. Mm-hmm. And what sleep mode does basically is it scales down your replica sets when they're not being used. And I think the dev environments are probably the strongest use case for this. So, you know, developers are only working like 40 hours a week, you know, 
They might even have multiple, you know, Kubernetes environments that they need to use. All of that stuff is sitting there. And, you know, as we mentioned, that's a lot of cost. And what uh, Sleep Mode does is it looks at the API requests that are coming in. And if there are none for that namespace, it can make it sleep. And again, this is configurable, mm-hmm. right? So you can say if there haven't been any API requests for 30 minutes, you know, go ahead and scale down all the replicas. And so if you're doing something like auto-scaling your compute nodes, you know, you could actually end up scaling up and down nodes based on that. But you know, there are some places I think that do charge, you know, just even based on the workloads. And so you could could definitely be saving some money there, saving resources for sure. It's very configurable. We've just added some new features recently where you can even set up a schedule. So you could say, I want the stuff to sleep every day between like 6 p.m. and 7 a.m., however you want to set it up. So your answer made me want to look on the website and find out more. So job well done. And now we can move on to the next thing. I just want to add one more thing. The thing that's really cool about it is that it does just scale all the replicas sets down to zero replicas, Mm -hmm. right? And so everything else is still in place. You know, you don't have to spin up the environment again. It's all there. It's all running and ready to go. And it makes an annotation to remember how many replicas were there. And so when the sleep mode ends, it just spins it all back up. Okay. So I'm going to ask you a related question. Okay. But this one is about the CNCF landscape. And I'm wondering, which is the project that gets you most excited these days from the CNCF landscape? Oh, gosh, that's a a hard one. Because I'm not sure if some of the things that I would necessarily think of are technically in the CNCF or not. It's okay. We, we can make it wider. I'm just wondering what gets you excited these days. And I'm imagining yeah. it's going to be Kubernetes related, but it's okay if it's not. I mean, a couple of things come to mind immediately. I'm super excited about SigStore and mm-hmm. the stuff that the ChainGuard folks are doing. I feel like, I feel like that's going to have a huge impact on the way folks release open source software and consume mm-hmm. it too. So if you're not familiar with SigStore, people who are listening, it you know, basically lets you sign and, and validate you know, software. And yeah, I think that's going to have a huge impact. And I think the other thing that's out there that really has blown my mind a lot is um, Cilium. I heard about eBPF at first through Brendan Gregg, I'm pretty sure. I've followed Brendan on Twitter for a few years, uh, been a big fan of his. And I saw him talking about eBPF and he was mainly talking about it in relation to, you know, performance, which is his specialty, uh, flame graphs, things like that. And so I thought, okay, this eBPF thing is pretty cool. And then I saw Liz Rice's talk at the last KubeCon and another talk as well. And I didn't realize how flexible it was, like how many things you could do with it. I saw this talk and I immediately started thinking about incidents that I had been in, you know, times that I was troubleshooting where it was really, really difficult to to solve a problem. And, you know, basically it can tap in and see everything that's happening, like in your kernel. It reminds me a lot of Dtrace, actually. I was a Solaris nerd years ago. Yeah. And Linux, you know, there is a Linux Dtrace, but it's just not the same, you know. And 
And to have that power, you know, to be able to, you're holding up the Brendan Gregg book about systems performance. Yeah. Oh, yes. This was one of the Christmas presents. I can hardly wait to read it. It's the second edition. It's an amazing book. Brendan Gregg, yeah. you're a legend. That's all I have to say. <laughs> and so, you know, eBPF is this, you know, super flexible thing that can do so many different tasks, but, you know, you've got to be able to write code to make it do those things, you know, and for a lot of folks, you know, writing kernel code is going to be a barrier, right? Mm -hmm. And so the idea that you have this tool that, you know, it's really, it does all kinds of things. It's like a security tool. It's like monitoring. It's a CNI. It's just, it's really amazing. So I, I, yeah, that's another one of the projects that I think is super exciting. I had the pleasure of talking to both Liz Rice and then Lawrence at the last KubeCon. So I forget which episodes those were, but we only had maybe 15, 20 minutes. Yeah. I love those conversations. And you reminded me to, I'm writing this down, talk to Dan Lawrence, I'm writing it down, mm. <laughs> and talk to Liz Rice. So I do not forget. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> uh, Duffy Cooley is there at Isovalent too. Ah, yes, 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 yes. He's great. Yeah, that as well, that as well, yes. I remember that because I reached out to him via email. He was uh, at Heptio, VMware, Apple, and now I want to say Cilium. Isovalent. Isovalent, that's the company name. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. And he's definitely one of the people that I want to talk to. So thank you very much. My list, it's Cilium as well. Cilium is there. It's really interesting. I can hardly there wait to go. try it out. Yep, that's the one. Crossplane. There's something about it. I don't know. It's the people. It's the project. We are actually starting to use it for our 2022 setup. Every year we we refresh our setup completely yeah. and we challenge a lot of the things that we use. Cilium is one of the things that we want to use, but crossplane, crossplane is something that we already use. And the idea behind it is that if someone was to delete our production Kubernetes cluster and everything was down, yeah. there is a cross-plane running on upbound which can restore everything. So go and delete production, be my guest, because it will be back within a few minutes. <laughs> it's super cool looking. And to me, it's very analogous to those things like Puppet. You know, It's funny to me, like, and I don't mean this as a diss at all, like Dan who works at Crossplane is fantastic. He actually did a, a demo recently where he used vCluster as part of like his Crossplane demo, which was really cool. Really? I missed that. Okay. Yeah. Dan, I, you haven't told me about this. Come on, Dan. <laughs> yeah, it's it's that same sort of thing. Like the tools change, but the concepts don't, right? Like you don't want to rebuild production from scratch if someone deletes it, right? And so you're going to use Terraform or Pulumi or Crossplane or something, right? To be able to, to codify these things so that you can, you know, either build new environments or, you know, add things on or, or even replace things that get deleted accidentally. So yeah, Crossplane looks super cool. I haven't played with it yet, but yeah. very interested in it. For me, it's the idea that something is continuously reconciling. So there's nothing that anyone has to do. If you have Crossplane running somewhere, we it was part of Shipmas episode 33. We contributed, we actually built the Linode Terrajet provider, which uh, provisions LK clusters, which is what we use for production currently. Okay. And if someone was to delete, for example, including myself, if I was to accidentally, and I'm doing air quotes, delete the Kubernetes cluster or production Kubernetes cluster, there's cross-plane running. It will notice that, that the yeah. state diverged. It will automatically create it without anyone needing to run anything. And that is amazing. 
to me, that's so powerful. Yeah. And, you know, when you think about the fact that Kubernetes also has those, you know, built-in methods of reconciling state, it really does seem like you could spin up a cluster and have all your workloads ready to go pretty easily. That's right. So I missed your Twitch stream, but I'm wondering, what is your new startup idea? <laughs> does it have, <laughs> is it related in any way to what we've just discussed? <laughs> no, not really. I've been doing some garbage tweets lately that... <laughs> So I, I'm streaming on Twitch a little bit just for fun. I've been playing games and I was playing the new Pokemon game and there was basically right. a, a Pokemon name that came up that I thought would be a good startup name. I'm actually blanking on it right now. It will blow your mind, but Pokemon is in the Kubernetes documentary. Oh, really? Yes, really. You will enjoy okay. that. <laughs> I'm going to have to watch it. <laughs> it's too good. Yeah. Okay. So... I mentioned at the beginning that we'll talk about one of the topics that you're passionate about, and that was ADHD. Do you want to talk about it? Yeah, absolutely. So I got diagnosed with ADHD just a little bit over a year ago, and I'm not young. I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty middle-aged. And so it's really been amazing to me because it's had an impact on my life in so many ways, and I didn't realize it at the time. And this is an experience that a lot of folks, I think, who get diagnosed, especially as adults have, you know, there's a lot of things that go into it and people's experiences are different, right? Like people talk about ADHD in sort of sweeping ways, you know, but it's not exactly the same for everybody. I always try to caveat that, but some of the, the sort of classic problems that people have is like following through and finishing things forgetfulness, you know, like working memory problems. And it's just really interesting to me because I look back at my life, like I dropped out of college twice. I never graduated. Um, I had, you know, academic problems in in high school too. Just a, a lot of things that I think, you know, have been very much influenced by this thing that I have, you know, and I didn't understand it. And a lot of what ends up happening is people end up labeling you and you end up labeling yourself, you know, you're lazy, you're dumb, you're a loser, whatever. And all of those things can have a really big impact on somebody's self-esteem. Mm. And so it's been really great for me to get diagnosed and start learning more about it because I feel like I'm at a point now, you know, a year later where I understand my brain much better. It doesn't mean that I've like overcome ADHD, right? I don't think that really happens but I'm getting a lot better at managing it and coping with it. One of the things I've started doing is, so I got an ADHD coach who has helped me a lot. And I'm actually now in training to become a coach myself. So I'm part of this training program where it's uh, three classes and I've taken the first two now. And through that, I've learned a lot as well. And so I think the, the most beneficial thing for me, besides just like understanding my brain better is that I've been pretty transparent about this stuff. I've talked about it on Twitter quite a bit, the fact that I have it and like what it means. And, you know, I'll joke about some of the things that I do that I think are, are driven by ADHD. But I feel like it's important for us to talk about these things if you can, you know. Um, not everybody is going to be able to, to make themselves that vulnerable to talk about mental health issues publicly. And I'm someone who's got a lot of privilege as a straight white guy, right? And so I'm more secure in talking about those things probably than some folks would be. But the most rewarding thing to me by far is 
I'll have people, and it's usually in direct messages on Twitter. Somebody will send me a message and they'll say, hey, I really related with your tweets. I went out and got evaluated and it turns out I had it. And you know, now I'm taking medication and I'm doing much better or, or maybe it's their kid you know, that they got diagnosed. And that's just been an amazing feeling to me. Every time I get one of those messages, I'm like, wow, you know, something I did maybe helped make a big difference in this person's life. I know that the last couple of years, too, to be more precise, have been really tough mentally for many of us. Yeah. All the lockdowns, all the social distancing, conferences, everything remote, lots and lots of meetings. It's been tough for a lot of people. And I know that some of uh, my closer friends are the ones that have been struggling mentally. And I'm wondering, what is the difference between having ADHD and just being burned out? That's a really good question. So ADHD, parts of it at least are definitely a cognitive thing, right? Like I mentioned the working memory and what they call executive function, which is the ability to like lay out a plan and accomplish a goal, that kind of thing. So my feeling is the reason I got diagnosed in the first place is that I was struggling a lot, right? During the pandemic, that's exactly what led me to, to go and get evaluated. And what I feel like is that the cognitive load in general has been a lot higher for a lot of people, right? Which I think exacerbates the ADHD stuff. But it's interesting because there are people who, you know, there's sometimes people who talk negatively about ADHD. And one of the things they'll say is, oh, well, everybody gets distracted, you know, and, you know, they'll, they'll look at ADHD symptoms and they'll say, oh, everybody has that. It's true that a lot of people experience some of those ADHD symptoms, but to actually get diagnosed with ADHD, you know, part of the evaluation process is not just looking at what's happening with you today, you know, but like looking at your childhood, you know, did you have these problems in school, you know, while maybe more folks right now are experiencing some of those symptoms than, than they normally would, that's not going to get somebody an ADHD diagnosis if it started two years ago. So that's really the problem. It's it's partly degree, and it's the fact that this has spanned your whole life mm. because it's a physical thing in your brain, and it's very genetic. I mentioned people who who talked about their kids, you know, getting their kids diagnosed, and it's actually a really common experience for parents to take their kids to get evaluated, and then as they start learning about ADHD more, they realize they have it too. Okay, so. Now I realize the tweet where he asked about rereading things a few times and the relation to ADHD, that was a joke because I do that as well. I reread my emails many, many times and uh, it doesn't mean that you have ADHD, just just, just to be clear. I actually was was joking, but not joking, you know, because okay. I really do think that the that part of the reason that I do that is because of my ADHD. So, so there are some things that come along with ADHD because you've failed so many times at different things, you know, there is, you know, shame that comes with that. ADHD people, a lot of them tend to be perfectionists. And so the joke I was making was about how I will like reread an email a bunch of times after I've already sent it, you know, I'll just keep going back and looking at it again. And while you don't have to have ADHD to do that thing, you know, I think there are specific reasons why somebody with ADHD mm. might do that. I see. It's again, a little bit of that difference in degree, right? There's a, there's a really good book by Dr. Barkley, who is one of the really famous ADHD researchers. And he shares some really amazing statistics in there, but the gist of it is that, 
you know, he did this survey of people, you know, with ADHD and then people in the general population. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, it goes through a bunch of different symptoms and it's like the people in the general population will say they have the problem, but it's like a small amount, you know, and then the ADHD people, it'll be like 85% or 90% or something. So, so it, it really is, you know, a difference of degree and it's a disability or it can be if it's something that interferes that much with someone's life. Thank you, Rich, for opening my mind to a topic that I knew some things about, but not as much as, as you shared. So thank you very much for that. Oh, you're welcome. I think it's it's something that a lot of folks don't understand. And unfortunately, there there is some really bad information out there about it. So yeah. As we prepare to wrap up, what would you say is the most important takeaway for our listeners from our entire conversation today? Oh, wow. There's so many. <laughs> it was a really great conversation. I think that, that honestly, you know, for folks who are in software and especially using Kubernetes, probably the thing that, that I'd like to emphasize again is how amazing the community is. You know, and we talked about my podcast and that, that latest episode with Chris and Dave. And, you know, Chris has been in a number of different open source communities. And she mentioned during that conversation that the Kubernetes community was the best and most welcoming, you know, one she'd ever been a part of. And I feel the same way. If you're someone who is interested in, you know, contributing or speaking about Kubernetes, I mean, contributions can come in lots of fashions, right? It's not just code. It's, you know, docs, it's, you know, giving talks, doing videos, whatever you can do to help educate people. And so if you're interested in doing that sort of thing, but maybe you've had bad experiences in other technical communities, you know, the Kubernetes one is really welcoming. And I think that it's it's worth getting involved with. I'm definitely seconding that spot on. Nah, that was my experience as well. I've been around for a couple of years and I didn't have well, like one bad experience. People make all the difference. And it's something which keeps drawing me back to the KubeCons. It keeps drawing me back to all those conversations. They're amazing. I would like to thank you for today, Rich. And I'm looking forward to returning the favor when Ship It comes to KubeCuddle. Yeah, I definitely want to have you on. And I'll try to watch the Kubernetes documentary before we have that conversation. Yeah, that'll be great. Thank you, Rich. Thank you for tuning into another episode of Ship It. This is just one of our podcasts for developers. Go to changelog.com forward slash master for the rest. You can join us for free by changelog.com forward slash community. Thank you, Breakmaster Cylinder, for the great feats. Our listeners from all around the world appreciate the low latency changelog.com that you're serving fastly. That's it for this week. See you all next week. One last thing. By the time this episode is out, I expect us to have recorded a KubeCuddle episode with Rich. That's right. The follow-up to this episode is Rich hosting me on the KubeCuddle podcast. I'm really looking forward to that. Thank you.